Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Huen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening. Good evening. And Brian Schmidt. Hello, everyone. <laughs> also known as Brian Schmidt. This podcast is intended, to answer, <laughs> is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. Right now, we have one level, and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. And we'd like to thank our newest patrons, Brian Murphy and John Sanchez, for the pledge. Thanks so much, guys. And we sincerely hope that all of you will give us your support. So, oh, and stay tuned to the end of the show to hear what we've got going on in our shops. So let's get right into it. Hui, you've got the first question. Okay, so this is from John Finnan. Hi, you have a great show. Thank you very much, John. I'm ready to buy my first track saw, and I'm looking at the Festool TS-55. I'm looking for opinions on whether the cordless model is worth the, an extra 170 over the corded. In the shop, with a dust extractor, it seems like the cord is not much additional encumbrance. Encumbrance? Encumbrance. Excuse me, encumbrance. Outside, the cordless with just the dust bag would be advantageous. Thanks, John. Okay, so I actually have, surprise, surprise, but I have the Makita track saw with the batteries. And it was when I was doing stuff for uh, Home Depot that they had sent it to me. And it's a great saw, but I used it with their dust extractor, the Makita dust extractor. And what I found the difference between if you're dealing, I, I, I'm right there with you, John. If you're dealing with a dust extractor anyway and you've got a hose, it really is, there's really no point. And plus, you've got to deal with the batteries and charging the batteries and making sure they're charged. And depending on how often you're using now, if you're cutting a whole bunch of cabinets and plywood and you're keeping those batteries charged all the time, totally understand. But I don't keep my batteries on a charger, even like my Milwaukee handheld battery powered tools on a charger all the time. And so my personal opinion is I wouldn't go with a cordless because I'm always in the shop. And even when I go to a site of some sort, there is always electrical power available. So I'm not doing site work where I don't have electrical power. Uh, what are your thoughts on that guy? Because I, uh, what, what I do you guys have at the at the at PDX. PDX. Uh, I'm sorry, Indy. It's PD. PD. In oh, sorry, let's call it PD. Sorry, um, my mistake. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> Just busting your balls. Um, we have TS-55s. We had TS-75s, and they they downgraded them to TS-55s. I still don't know the reason for that. But hmm. um, myself, you know, I, I don't do any work outside the shop. Mm-hmm. So I've always got the dust extractor hooked up to the saw and having a cord hooked up to the saw and a dust extractor, it just seems normal. Not having a cord, but having the dust extractor hooked up doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. You've got something hooked up to it one way or the other. 
I can see it if you're out in the field mm-hmm. and you don't have a dust extractor handy, it's handy to just use the bag. I don't know how well the bag picks up. From what I understand, it does a very good job, but it's not going to be as good as a as a dust extractor. And it definitely won't be HEPA. Right. Um, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. I, myself, I don't have a use. In my use case, I don't have the use for $170 for the battery-operated one. Yeah. Brian? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't so I don't have the Festool track saw, but I do have a DeWalt track saw. I got mine on Facebook Marketplace and it was new. But uh and the reason I bought it on Marketplace is it was less expensive and it just so happened to be cordless. Now, I didn't have a specific use case for the cordless track saw, but um I have found that because I usually just use it for cutting plywood, um that having the the cordless version, there's no issues with, is it powerful enough or is the battery going to kind of, uh, you know, be insufficient for cutting through some, you know, thicker hardwood lumber. Um, I do a lot of breaking because my shop is in my basement. I do all the breaking down of plywood out in either my garage or in the driveway. And a lot of times if the weather is nice enough, I will just position my saw horses um, downwind of the shop and I will just let it rip with no dust extraction period and just let that sawdust, uh, sprinkle out into the yard. Um, free and free. Yeah. So, let it go. Let it you know, fly. It, yeah. I, if I had to buy one now, question for you guys on the festival specifically, if let's say you're using a festival, um, extractor, and you've got a festival corded track saw. Are you able to plug that track saw into your extractor? Does that have like a power power supply on that when it's plugged in? It does, yeah. Yep. So you're able to kind of clip your cord to your hose and have it almost be a single continuous or a single single mm-hmm. strand rather than I've a actually got power cord I've and, actually got one of the sleeved uh, yeah. vacuum hoses where the, the, the cord is in a yeah. sleeve that goes all the way back to the dust extractor. So it's just one piece. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you have but, even less snag ability, snag ability, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if you could do that, I would, yeah, I'd, I would, if I had to go and buy one today, I would probably buy it with a cord um, and not, yeah. not buy a cordless one. Um, the the only other advantage I can think of to the to the cordless is if if you can't get plywood delivered to your home and you need to buy it at big box store and break it down in the in the parking lot. I don't know if that's allowed or not. Maybe it's frowned upon. But um, having a cordless version that you can just that you can just break out and and use to to rip that down to fit it into your vehicle uh, yeah. might be an advantage to the cordless. I, I do have a cordless Dewalt. Cirque saw, not, right? Yeah, it's a saw. It's not a seven and a quarter. It's like a five or a four and a half, five and a half. It's a smaller blade on it. And I have brought it up to Home yeah. Depot and cut stuff on the, the better way pickup truck with it. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, and I, I use that saw mainly to, to cut rough cut boards. Yeah. yeah. To length, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it works fine. 
think it's a you, five and a half. Have you ever tried to use your Festool TS-55 or TS-75 as a circular saw? Without like, the track? Without the track, yeah. No. No, me neither. No. I've never done it. <laughs> I haven't had a reason to. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a regular circular saw. So. Yeah. I, I've got a, a really old Craftsman. It's got to be 40 years old now. I paid like $30 for back in the day. And I don't think I've plugged it in in 15 years. Yeah, because you got that battery-powered one, huh? No, because I just don't have a need for it. Um, so, anyways, Brian, you've got yeah. the next question. Yes. This question is from Jordan Onek. And Jordan writes, hey, guys, I just discovered this podcast when my brother-in-law, Brian, recommended it. Oh, that was my <laughs> Jordan is my brother-in-law. So he is a new woodworker um, and a guitar technician by trade and has recently started building his own solid body electric guitar. I've been studying up on tool safety and learning proper technique. As a beginner, I don't want to develop any bad habits or unsafe practices. Mm -hmm. I use a router table when creating the guitar neck from a template. But if I'm being honest, I'm a bit intimidated by it and would prefer to start routing with a handheld router instead. As a guitar player and thumb wrestling aficionado, I would like to keep all my digits where they belong. <laughs> with that being said, I have a few questions I'd like to ask specific to hand routers. And the first question is, when edge routing hardwood, is there anything I need to do to be aware or is there anything I need to be aware of that would cause a router to suddenly jump or kick back? Can I safely do this with a trim router or do I need a two plus horsepower router? I'm using figured curly maple for the neck and alder for the body. So the neck is going to be about an inch thick. The body will be around an inch and three quarters. Does, does the type of wood, does it make a difference? So um, First question in that is, is there anything I need to be aware of that would cause a router to suddenly jump or kick back when edge routing um, on that? So, you know, using any kind of a, like a spiral bit or a compression bit will help quite a bit in terms of avoiding um, that kind of jumping on the wood. Um, you want to avoid doing uh, a climb cut and guy, or we will be able to better explain to the listeners um, what a, what a climb cut is. I'll do it better than I would, but something to, to be wary of. Um, and light passes would be my recommendation. You know, the closer you can, um, cut out your, the closer you can cut to your line before going to the router, the better. Yes. Um, and even then sometimes doing kind of a, a light skipping pass, if you've got some spots where it's just not, practical you know don't don't engage the bit fully in there um yeah. as far as whether or not the figured curly maple for the neck uh versus the alder for the body whether or not that makes a difference i'll probably defer to one of one of you two there um yeah. so it's okay to, to position this well the the questions that i'd like to hear from you on guy and we uh and we'll start with we is can, can you edge route hardwood with a trim router or do you have to use a higher horsepower motor? And um, how much does 
the type of material figured maple versus alder make a difference and then the climb cut if you could explain that so i'll answer the first question um which is whether or not he can use a trim router uh, the answer is yes and no it is dependent mainly on the size of bit that you're using uh, the size of the collet, because a lot of trim routers will only accept an eighth, uh, a quarter inch um, <clears throat> bit, quarter inch diameter bit, quarter inch shaft. Uh, if you go to the bigger shaft, which is a uh, half inch, you tend to have to go to a bigger router, those two horsepower plus. Uh, the trim routers you can definitely do, dep- it, it depends on how big of an edge. And as far as I know, I believe the, because uh, he's talking about hard body uh guitars here the fender telecasters have something like um and 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 stratocasters have something like a three quarter of an inch round over on the edges that's a pretty big bit to be putting in a trim router so if you are doing that i think you might want to go to a two horsepower router in terms of uh, let, let, let's go ahead and go to guy with that same question you know, well, it, I, I think it's important to understand that if you're taking off that much material with a quarter inch shank bit, yeah. doesn't matter how big the router is, the bit's going to chatter. Yeah. So you really need a half inch shank yeah. bit to do that. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the router table. Yeah. Not necessarily a handheld router, just because I've 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 used the router table so much. Uh, the only time I really use uh, a handheld router is as as a trim router when I'm just taking like and you're making an eighth inch or less than a quarter of an inch round over. Um, for the most part, I'm always putting stuff in the router table. Yeah. If I've got a router table jig, I'm using uh, the uh, a larger router. Anyways. So as far as climb cut goes, there's no reason to ever do climb cuts. Don't do them. It's unsafe and unnecessary. It's bad practice to do climb cuts. Just take off a small, what climb cut is, is you're running the the bit backwards over the wood. You're running it with the bit. It can take off on you. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to ever do it. There's no good reason to ever do climb cuts. Um, just ta- if you want to take off a little bit at a time, that's fine. The biggest thing he's going to have a problem with is with the figured wood. Yeah. And yep. it doesn't matter if you're climb cutting or you're going regular cut, it, it, tear out's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. And that just has to be with the, 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 the figure and the compression of the wood. If you're just doing straight I would recommend the white side ultimate trim router bit, which is a quarter and one and a quarter inch long. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's one inch wide. It's pretty beasty, but it's a compression bit. Yeah. And that thing is just awesome for, for template routing. It's just, it's now, just wonderful. Now, now, if his material thickness is one and a and three quarter inch, you can take off the top bearing. Yeah, just get the get the the bit that has the bearing on the top and the bottom. Right, right. And then you can just flip the jig over and, and do it. But the, with the, with that jig with that bit, there's no such thing as uphill or downhill routing. It just mm-hmm. cuts through it. It's just mm-hmm. wonderful. 
Yeah. Um, that's really what I'd recommend doing is getting that that router bit. And you don't have to worry about any of that crap. Yeah. To be yeah. honest with you. You're yeah. talking like you're talking like the big old honker two hundred dollar white side yep. ultra yep. flush trigger. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. That's that's what I told them too. I said yes, yep. um, you need. So um, minimize chipping, tear out. So just to add to what Guy had said, uh, so I had made uh, the Maloof rocker, you know what I'm talking about, a sculpted rocker. And those have some really massive roundovers to get that uh, sculpted shape to everything. And yep. what I did is I started with a small bit. I started with a quarter inch bit and then I did three eighths and then I did half and then I finished up with a three, uh, three quarter inch bit. Yeah. to do all those roundovers. Now that takes a lot more time, obviously, yeah. but the tear out and mind you, I was using figured wood. I was using curl uh tiger maple, curly maple. I think they're the same thing. Maybe they're not. Um they're not. Okay. Guy is shaking his head. No. Um they look similar. Anyway, they're figured woods. Uh it was a figured wood and um I didn't get any tear out because I was stepping up in that size of bit. So, you could do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, man, definitely try to go to the router table route and you don't have to have a fancy router table. Like we talked about before, you just, you know, get a piece of plywood that, that can support the router itself and attach it to the bottom of that sucker. And you should be good and use paddles, use paddles. I, yes. I, I learned that the hard way. Use paddles. Yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> Cause you know, I, I took off a sliver of my finger. Yeah. Anyway, oh, yeah. it grew back. It grew back. I'm a starfish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Hope that helps, Jordan. All right. I, I guess the next question goes to me, and this is from Kurt Schmidt. No relation to our own little Brian Schmidt. No relation. Are we sure the nepotism isn't being rich here? <laughs> no, it's not. So Kurt says, hey, guys, I have a question about finishing. I'm about to purchase a solid mahogany entry door and I'd like to finish it myself. Not so much like in as much as save a grand, but I'm not quite sure what to use. I've asked professional painters and looked online, but get a ton of different responses. I don't really want to stain it, but rather get a color from an oil finish like you get from Waterlocks or Odie's. From all my research, I'm learning, I'm leaning towards total boat marine wood finish. I live in the south burbs of Chicago, brave man, and my door faces directly west. It's direct, it's covered by about a four foot overhang, and I have a 30 year old oak in front, so it wouldn't see much direct sunlight, rain, or snow, which is good. Hopefully you'll get this with the next couple episodes. I think it's about a four week lead time and we've ordered it this week. I don't know when this question came in. We're too so late. We are too late. But it's okay. a good question. It is a good question. So first, buying uh, an entry door that's solid mahogany is actually a very good thing because mahogany is very weather is a wet, very weather resistant wood. That's why a lot of doors are made out of mahogany. Yeah. Um, you, you'll find a lot of them are actually painted and not, don't have a clear finish on them. Anyway, so the total boat marine wood finish would be a very good choice, mm -hmm. yep. um, mainly because it's got good UV inhibitors and it's designed to be in a wet, damp environment. 
Yeah. Uh, you could also use Helmsman spar urethane, which yep. is made by Minwax. Yep. I believe. Mm-hmm. And that would work very well. Um, uh, water locks, I don't think as much. Um, Odie's, definitely not. That stuff is fit for small boxes, and that's about it. Um, I wouldn't put it on furniture. I definitely wouldn't put it on a door that's going to see out outside um, weather. Um, Brian, do you have anything that you'd like to say about this? No, but I am enjoying hearing your guys' <laughs> answers. <laughs> so so to, just to add to that guy, uh, Waterlocks actually does have a marine resin modified finish. Um, is that, a diff- is that different than... The regular the, water. Okay, so it's yeah. a different. It's a different. It, it, it is a different product. It's not okay. uh, Waterlock's original. Waterlock's original okay. is a good product, but yeah, it's, it's awesome. water resistant. It's not waterproof. And I think the Waterlock's marine finish would be more on par with the Total Boat marine finish. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I think, I think what you said there, Sparrier, I would have gone. You know, mentioned the spar urethane or the, I think the Rust-Oleum version of that is called, is it called Verithane? What is it called? The um, Verithane's a different, I think is a different company. But, okay. um, but uh, I, I've used some Total Boat products before and it's, it's very good stuff. Okay. Now, I don't know if that's a, is that a water-based or is it an oil-based? Let me see here. Total Boat Marine Wood Finish is... I don't know. Dun, dun, dun. Does it, does it not say? If it's water-based, I probably wouldn't use it because not not necessarily because it would be a bad finish, but because it's not going to give you that depth. Okay. And unique, the, unique one-part high solids, linseed oil, and resin okay. formula seals okay. and preserves into yeah, your mix. So I think, it's, I think it's oil. I think it's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be yeah. fine. And Total Boat is a very good company, and I would stand behind just about everything they make. If they say it's it's good enough for a boat, it's good enough for your door. Yeah, it's it's about forty two, forty three dollars a quart, and then the Waterlocks uh, Marine finish is about the same. It's about forty five dollars. Yeah, um, but like I said, the the other thing is mahogany is is a very good uh, rot resistant type of wood for outdoor use. So yeah. Agreed. Yeah. You can't. You can't go wrong. I think that was a short answer to your question, Kurt. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're. I'm sorry. We're late. Um, yep. Hui, why don't you take the next one? Well, I got another finishing question. Actually, this is from mm-hmm. Josh from the Black Dog Woodworks. Hey guys, as always, I love the show and how you guys are able to provide excellent information from various perspectives. Well, thank you. Josh, we really appreciate that. Today, I would like to pick your brains about food safe finishes for a couple of different situations. My wife bought me an outdoor pizza oven for my birthday. And because I'm a woodworker, I I promptly threw out the wooden pizza peel that I've been using for years so that I can make one. My first attempt was cherry and spalted maple. The maple ended up being much more punky than I had expected, so I made a second one with cherry, hickory, and babinga. What would you guys suggest for finishes? The peel 
will be going into a 700 degree oven and I plan on repurposing the one with spalted maple to a charcuterie or serving platter. So it might have hot pizza on it, but I would like it to be sealed. Keep up the awesome podcast, Josh. Okay, so uh, I only bring up this question or I brought up this question from from Josh because uh, I actually made a few cutting boards recently and I did some testing. And the testing that I did was uh, mineral oil uh, versus tongue oil. And what I came to the conclusion of, I have a bottle of uh, a jug of pure tongue oil. So not tongue oil finish. Which so is does tongue oil come from like the tongue of cows? No, it comes from the seeds of pressed, uh, the, the pressed seeds of the tongue tree, which is... Uh, in a lot of Asian countries, particularly China, particularly China. Uh, that's the only country I know <laughs> that actually has the tongue tree. Okay. Uh, anyway, it is a drying oil. So basically what that means is after it dries, it, it kind of becomes this like hardened sort of film. Now, it, it is not actually a film finish. But what I realized about using tongue oil on one cutting board versus using mineral oil on another cutting board is that the water resistance, the way the water sort of peeled off of the one cutting board with tongue oil was much better than that of the one with mineral oil. So I like the idea of using pure tongue oil, and I think that would actually work really well with you. So before... I go ahead and pass that on. There is a really good video by uh, the Wood Whisperer, so Mark Spagnolo, where he actually tested in much greater depth than I tested with just running it underwater with between like mineral oil and a couple other ones. And, and he really liked tongue oil as well. So take that for what it's worth, um, which, you know, I think is worth a lot because he does some pretty decent testing. Uh, Sean. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry, Brian. <laughs> I called you Sean. <laughs> Listen, it's it's only it's only been eleven months. I know. <laughs> I'll take it as a compliment. Um, <laughs> now, we, uh, we I just want uh, clarification on what you said. So you finished one with pure tongue oil, and then one with just a, a regular mineral oil, right? Correct. Yeah. What no, you, yeah. Yeah. What did you say happened with the mineral oil? You, did you say you did have issues with that finish? Or? No, I didn't have I didn't have issues. There were two things that I liked better about the tongue oil. One, yeah. it looked better. And two, I felt like it beaded up the water and resisted the water a lot better. Uh, like it, 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 it was much more yeah. hydrophobic, right? So yeah. it just like literally just like just beaded the water off yeah. on the tongue oil one. Now Applying tongue oil, when you apply it, it takes a long time to cure. Yeah, like, the cure time is really long on that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like a week or longer to cure. So uh, be ready for that, I guess. Um, and there are different ways to apply it, and there are some ways that people swear by where other people yeah. like like to soak it. I, I didn't soak it. I applied it, let it cure for a day, applied it again, let it cure for a day, and then you know, did a third coat and then let it cure for a week. Yeah. And that now, seemed to work pretty well. Now, 
See, this is my way of not actually providing an answer. I just ask additional questions. <laughs> just ask additional questions. <laughs> when you get your, when you, when, when, for both of you, when you use a mineral oil, are you just buying, are, is there a particular brand that you think stands out above another, or is it just a general mineral oil, or does it need no. to be a, like a, a cutting board, butcher block specific mineral oil? There is no difference between the mineral oil that you would take because you're constipated versus the mineral oil that you would apply to a cutting board. Yeah, you're just paying more for it because it says cutting board oil. Exactly. Yeah. It's a marketing thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I just get it from, I just got it from like Walgreens or, or yeah. CBS or wherever. Yeah. Just, now, yeah. I, will, I will confess, I have never made a pizza peel. I've never made anything that's going to go into a, you know, a 500 to 700 degree oven. So I can't personally attest to, to this working, but the the bit of research I did on a couple different websites, including Lumberjacks, it seemed like the unanimous response was uh, mineral oil is a real safe, real safe bet. Not, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's definitely safe. So if, so if, you know, if you're not looking to get too risky with it and you want something that's tried and true, um, the mineral oil is is probably a safe bet there yeah yeah like you're not going to go wrong with using mineral oil i just i think i like the look of the tongue oil better probably because you get a little bit of ambering through the tongue oil yeah guy what are your thoughts do you have any thoughts you don't like cutting boards <laughs> well I, it's not that i don't like cutting boards i, I i've never made one so yeah. good good um, for you <laughs> I, I did make a char our charcuterie board, which was just a big board with a hole in it that we <laughs> threw some cheese on. Um, How'd you finish that? Uh, mineral oil. Mineral oil. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is, I, I really don't think it matters that much. It's a looks thing. Yeah. Um, there is no such thing as a verified food safe finish um but they're all kind of food safe it's not really the finish that's the issue it's that wood has pores in it and bacteria can get in the pores so it, it's 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 a very old argument or a very old question what what can i put on it that's food safe as far as sticking it in the oven goes, nothing is really going to keep it from burning if you leave it in the oven. So most yeah. of the time you're just shoving it in there, grabbing a pizza and bring it out. And it's, it's going to be fine. Even myself, I wouldn't put any finish on it. Straight um, up raw wood. Straight up raw wood. All right. Uh, it's a functional thing and not a thing of beauty. So I don't care what it looks like. I just want to get my pizza out of the oven. I'm more worried about the pizza than I am the pizza peel. But the dude's putting cherry, hickory, and babinga in it, though. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You okay. could you could hang that one on the wall and then have one that you make out of a yeah. more um, yeah. economy wood that you actually use to remove the pizza from the oven. Yeah, yeah, like a maple or yeah. something. Just something. It, do, it doesn't really matter, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I said it's it's more of a functional thing, so I'm not too concerned about you know the ambering aspects of tongue oil versus mineral oil. <laughs> so um, maybe I was because this is a walnut cutting board, okay? Yeah. Well, that's that's different. That's yeah. different. So. Um, 
Anyways, that's my take on it. Fair, fair. Okay. All right. Well, I think it's uh, it's over to Brian now, right? Yep. Um, this uh, question is from Evan Foos, and Evan says, "Gentlemen, what is all the fu- what? It, oh boy, what is all the fuss about French cleats? Have you guys used them in your shop? Are they the organizational solution they are made out to be, or is there a better way to use wall space to keep your shop neat and your tools accessible?" Evan. Well, Evan. I don't wear French cleats. I wear slippers in my shop, so I'm not entirely sure I understand the question. Oh, French cleats, where you cut a 45-degree angle on two different boards, and you attach one board to the back of a, of a cabinet and the other one to the wall, and the two 45s mate together and allow you to just hang a cabinet or uh, some other uh, storage device uh, up on the wall without having to to drill and attach it. Do I use them in my shop? I don't. Um, and the reason for that is my walls aren't very flat. And it seems like I cannot, every time I've tried using them, it seems like I have a hard time getting like a real kind of like tight, snug fit. And it could also be that I haven't had anything quite heavy enough or designed the right way. So I'm going to attribute it to um, user error more than anything. But for me, what I've found to be a really good way to use wall space in my shop and keep my tools accessible is I'll actually uh, hang sheets of plywood (laughs) on the wall, which makes it kind of like a plywall. Yeah, there Um, you go. And then I build little tool holders um, and just drill those or screw those straight into the uh, the plywall, yeah. I've now called it. Um, and sure, if I decide I want to move something around, I'm left with a couple of screw holes, but it's really not that big of a deal. Um, yeah. So I found that to be the the in a small shop like mine, the most efficient use of space because with the French cleat, you know, you're you're kind of stuck hanging things on a, you know, in a straight row across. And maybe you've got some things that are tall, some things that aren't. Um, there are probably a lot of really good ways to organize it. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, the the easier way was to, to just put some plywood up on the wall and then attach all of my tool holders directly to that. Yeah. Guy, what do you do for storage in your shop? And what do you think about these French cleats? I have everything in drawers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, French cleats. I I like French cleats. Um, I don't see a problem with them. I think they're overblown a little bit, mainly because some YouTuber did an organizational video 10 years ago and then everybody else copied them. Before you knew it, there was 8,000 YouTube videos on French cleats and how great they are. Um, (laughs) I think that's really, really where it took off. But they've been around for a very, very long time. And they've only been really super popular probably like in the last seven or eight years. And it's because of YouTube. Uh, Anyways, I, I have used French cleats to hang stuff on my walls in the house, not necessarily in my shop. Yeah. It's very convenient to, to hang things like clocks and things that you're taking on and 
you know, putting on the wall and taking off the wall to like change batteries and stuff like that. Yeah. So I have used them for that before, but uh, in my shop, I don't think I've ever used French cleats. I'm usually just screwing it right into a stud or yep. doing what Brian has talked about and putting a piece of plywood up and screwing into that. Mm-hmm. I, it's a shop. It's a shop wall. I don't care if there's holes in the wall. Yep. No for worry the most for that. Part. Me either. So, yeah. Lee, what do you do? I have one item on my wall in my shop that has a French cleat, and that is my um, hand tool wall cabinet. That's it. Everything else is very much the same way that you and Brian, not Sean, but Brian, does. I don't know. Maybe Sean, we should ask Sean. Maybe he uses French cleats. Um, but uh, but no, I only have one item that, that uses French cleats. And French cleats are great for that exact purpose that you're talking about, guys. Just that like standalone cabinet or yeah. uh, clock or whatnot that has to be you know taken out, down fairly easily. But, but, but a lot of people really got um, excited about in their shops was they, they put, you know, like whole walls of the stuff up. Yeah. Like slat walls. And they could just make all these little holders and they could move it from here to there to there to here and over there and up here and down there. And they could move them everywhere they wanted to. And and I see the value of that. Sure. For me, again, it's a use case thing. For me, I'm not moving my stuff around that much. Right. You know, I kind of have an idea where I'm going to want to put it and I'm going to put it there and it's probably going to live there because I'm... I'm just way too lazy to take it down and move it. My personal feeling about having a French cleat system and having the tools exposed is that it just tends to have sawdust that collects over the top of them. And that's really why I like drawers. And so everything, as much as I can put into a drawer, I really like that. Yeah. It makes cleaning very easy. I can just go through, you know, if I have to do any massive amounts of cleaning, I just go through with a leaf blower. You know, yeah, we we you said you have your hand tool cabinet hanging on a French cleat. Why did you decide to use a French cleat for that? Uh, Easy install. Yeah. So so just the so the bottom one third of the back of the uh, hand tool cabinet is empty. And then the part that actually has a back to it is on that 45 degree angle at the edge. And so then the mating part. Literally, I, all I have to do is I just put it on the wall and I and I am, you know, screwing it into a stud. Right. And I have the mating cleated back that one third part of it. Um, I just level that on the wall, go through the stud and then I just boom, plop the plop the hang to hand tool cabinet right on that, you know, wide cleat and I'm done. That's it. Yeah, it's, it's a it, lot easier to hang things because you hang that to the wall. You can level it, put it right. on there and then just boop. Yeah. Put your stuff on. Yeah. I mean, there's no way I'm uh, – it's a big hand tool cabinet. There's no way I'm leveling that, right? I mean, I could. I've got the – what do you call it? The leveling stands or whatever for cabinets, but I'm not doing that. I just do a French cleat. It's easy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Good. So it has its purpose. It has its purpose in my shop, so mm-hmm. one purpose. <laughs> but it is not the panacea that some people – believe it to be i don't think it is at least not for me the there solution yeah 
Yeah. All right. All right, guy, you got the last one, man. All right. This comes from Deanna from Pomegranate Studios. And she says, I love your podcast. It really gets me through hump days at work and gets me excited to go back into the shop each weekend. Well, I'm glad we can help. I typically create mid-century modern furniture or pieces that are unique and allow some creativity. But I've developed a side side gig of cutting boards and such by request for business to business type orders. Recently, my day at my day job, I'm in a biomedical research. Uh, they requested a Missouri shaped plaques with logos and script for visiting keynote speakers. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I've avoided the CNC and laser world as I prefer hand tool woodworking. But one or the other would be necessary for this project and presumably a great feature in the shop. I've done my research and I still can't decide. This will be an ongoing order, so I don't want to be too cheap, but clearly not industrial due to space. What would you suggest? Diode seems limiting, but it would quickly pay off. CO2 sounds ideal, but very pricey. CNC, like the, the CNC shark, Sounds more useful to my main hobby, and I could cut the state shape too. I usually believe in pay once, cry once, but this is a significant decision. Thanks, and keep up the great chats. We're listening. Um, I have a couple different takes on this. Um, if you're doing just engraving, I would probably recommend a diode laser. Uh, I have a, a 36 watt diode laser. It'll cut like three quarter inch wood in one pass, but it leaves a very burnt surface. So it's it's not really a good edge. And I wouldn't want to cut anything out big like a cutting board with it. Even if you've got a CO2 laser, those are going to... Uh, cut quite a bit and, or, or leave quite a bit of, of burning on the sides, especially with wood that deep. So I would cut, I would do the laser engraving with the CO2, uh, with the diode laser. You can buy diode lasers like mine for around a thousand dollars. That will work really, really well and actually cut, you know, uh, half inch and quarter inch ply would be good for templates and stuff like that. CNC, you're getting into a lot of money. You know, you're, you're getting into the, the $4,000 to $5,000 plus range for CNC. Yeah. I understand that, you know, the, the, the cost of it doesn't scare you off. But if you're mostly into hand tool woodworking, I'm taking that as a sign that you'll never really get your full use out of it. Yeah. Um, that's just my opinion. I may be wrong on that. I may be mistaken. Mm -hmm. But um, to get one of any size, you know, you're, you're looking at a two by four or a four by two. Um, and you're looking at, you know, at least four to five thousand dollars for a decent one. I know mine's a four by two, and it was around fourteen. <laughs> Fourteen thousand. Yeah. Jeez. So, and I don't get the nearly the use out of it. I thought I would. So, um, 
Anyways, if you're just looking for engraving, I'd go with the diode laser. It does a fine job as far as engraving goes. I don't think you need to spend, you know, three, four grand for a CO2 laser. Lee, what do you think? Got nothing on the laser route. That's all you, Guy. Um, and I trust your opinion on that. Uh, you know, there's there are a lot of options for CNC. I mean, I know Axiom has one. There's Stepcraft. I think Stepcraft is a relatively new brand that's come out. I mean, Grizzly's in the game selling CNCs now. There are a lot of different ones. But I, but I'm, I'm right there with you. I, you know, I, I think you could probably get a really good template, maybe even made out of like some type of uh, Lexan plexiglass or something. Hey, somebody has, if you need to get a, a state cut out, you know, have yeah. somebody you know with a CNC cut a template for you. That's yeah. what I, that's what I was just about to say. A good template. Get yeah. a good template. Just pay a hundred dollars for a template and use and it over I bet and over you that, and over. And you know, you get good with the bandsaw, and um, you know, just ha- if you if you got a decent router table, man, yeah. you you can go to town. You know, too bad Missouri's go. not like North Dakota where it's just square. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I actually had to go and Google uh, shape of the state of Missouri. And, yeah, sure no. enough. Not nearly as rectangular no. as you might like. Uh, I would probably go the route of getting a diode laser like you suggest and try that out first and see if you can get. Listen, I mean, you know, you spend $100 on a template, uh, you're going to make that money back pretty quick if you're doing this and you're, yeah. if you're knocking out a bunch of them, right? I, I think it's going to take you a very long time to make the money back on a CNC if what the main thing that you're doing is making uh, state uh, state cutouts. That's going to take a while. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe I think that, that I think that's the right decision. Go with the diode laser first. Um, see what see what you can do with that. And then, you know, maybe CNC is in your future. But, but if you're just doing state templates or state shapes, it I, I think you're underusing the CNC. So, Brian, wow, <laughs> anything to add on that? <laughs> no, I mean, I I had the same idea you guys did with the um, getting that state template. We just did that at work for uh, for a wall plaque we needed to do. We actually bought a an Indiana uh, template off of Etsy, mm-hmm. and at the size that we were looking for the plaque to be. Um, and it was really, really inexpensive. And then we just glued up the blank and uh, template routed to that, and it worked really, really well. So um, I would, I would do that to to get your shape. And then I don't know a whole lot about the lasers, but it sounds like both guy and we were pretty unanimous in recommending that for for the engraving. Right, because I know a lot about lasers, so I just went along with whatever guys said. Freaking lasers! Uh, <laughs> yeah, the 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 dial of laser is going to be fine for engraving. I wouldn't yeah. expect it to do a lot of really heavy duty cutting, but for engraving, uh, uh, a twenty to thirty watt, or even a, some of the new forty watt lasers would be more than enough uh, to do what you need it to do. So and, and fairly affordable. Yeah, the 30 watts are going to take a big price dump because the 40 watts are just coming out now. 
Okay. So those are gonna those are gonna come down well under a thousand dollars, probably in the seven eight hundred dollar price range. If they're not there now, That's I haven't pretty checked cool. in a while. Yeah, so they'll be fine for awesome. something like that. So, all right, I think that's it for the questions. Is it? Yes. Yes. That's it. Yes. That's it. Brian, what you got going on in the shop there, bro? Well, I've got a couple things. I am making a white oak bookcase for our. Uh, daughter, she's a first grader and is really, really getting into reading. And the little baby bookcase that we have in her room right now, I have deemed insufficient. So I'm building a, a nice one out of white oak. And then uh, for my wife, who's a school nurse, I'm making a couple of small little trinket type boxes for them, for her and the nurse that she uh, shares the office with to store, you know, the flare pens and all the things that they have in the schools. So a couple little couple little boxes and then the, the bookcase. We what about you? Oh man. So I had a couple of things uh, break and that had to get replaced. Uh, so first off, I had to actually replace or upgrade my GPU. And for woodworkers that don't know what that is, that's a graphical processing unit uh, that, on my computer. It uh, doesn't have anything to do with uh, woodworking other than the fact that I use it to edit videos every now and then. So I just upgraded on that, but uh, did that this week. Uh, then my Festool sander broke and it's, uh, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it, it's over a decade old and I sent it in because it was acting up and I sent it in for repair to see how much it was cost. It was going to cost me $325. Oh, which was a new one? And the new one's, 250 so i decided to buy a new one Uh, it is a reconditioned tool so i bought it used as a reconditioned tool and uh yeah so it needs like new bearings a new motor new whole bunch of things and then it needs uh, a new sander uh yeah it's it's called get a new sander hui yeah um like i said it was over a decade old and was well past the uh warranty service on it anyway so feel a little bit heartbroken by that about that but you know I'm happy to be getting a new sander. Sounds then, like you got uh, your use out of it. I, I did. I did. And then I made a whole bunch of veneer for the doors on the sideboard that I'm making. And I, and uh, Brian, I ended up not veneering the back panel. So the back panel is just okay. going to be tongue and groove or uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Tongue and groove. Tongue and yep. groove. Yep. Um, because veneering is just going to take way too much work <laughs> and way too long. So, uh, for something so, yeah. that's never going to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to do a tongue and group backer and that's it and call it good. So, um, and I, I'm, I milled on the material that it's going to be half inch, uh, walnut. And then, uh, out of the one inch walnut, I was able to get the veneer from the same board and then the backer as well. So I was able to oh. resaw each. Yeah. 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 So, and then, and then from the backer, I was able to get the front and the back, the backer veneer from that. And a guy, when you re- when you uh, do shops on veneer, what's your typical thickness for like a thick veneer? Uh, I start at like about three thirty seconds. Okay, and then I'll run it through the drum sander through the drum sander and get it down somewhere between an eighth and three thirty seconds. Okay, okay, yeah, or no. Uh, a sixteenth and three thirty seconds. Excuse me. Okay. Okay. All right. What do you got going on? Nothing. Nothing at all. 
Nothing at all. I had, I was, I was in, uh, out of the country for vacation. Then I came back and then I had to have a procedure done. So I wasn't going out in the shop anyways. And then at work, I'm not, you know, I, I sit in the desk all day. So today, my boss and I decided, not my boss, that's not Brian, that <laughs> I need to learn Fusion 360. Let's go. So, really? Yeah, and it has to do with uh, what, what the architects use. They use this product called Revit, and they also use AutoCAD. Okay. And they want, we're starting to bid some larger jobs and we need to be able to drop our furniture into their files. And uh, Revit and AutoCAD are owned by, guess who? Autodesk. Mm -hmm. So Fusion 360 just pops right into it. Yeah. uh, Without a lot of grief. So we decided that I would start learning that. So. That's what I'm doing in my spare time is learning Fusion 360. I, I've tried to learn Fusion 360, and I, I got okay with it, but I don't know. It just the, seems very complex. The, the, the problem is it's not really designed for furniture making. It's designed for you know mechanical engineers to do manufacturing stuff and stress tests and stuff like that. But, you know... The, the, my problem is is that I'm so ingrained in... SketchUp? SketchUp. I've been using it for almost 20 years now. Mm. And uh, now I do it every day. I've just, I'm used to the workflow. I'm used to everything, how it works. And I've just got to, I've got to forget all that. And it's very, yeah. it's very difficult. I've tried to, tried to go down the Fusion 360 pass, path before once and uh, it didn't take. So uh, you'll be fine. Maybe this time it, it will. Yeah. Um, but that's about the only woodworking thing I've got going on right now. All right. All right. So I think that's going to do it for the show. And we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. So please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from you the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DMs through Instagram at woodshoplife. I can be found at Guy Shop on YouTube or just about any other social media at Guy's Woodshop. What about you, uh, Brian? Where can um, you be found? You can find me in my basement and not on traditional social media. <laughs> Brian Schmidt on uh, Simple Cove. Oh, yeah. that's true. Mm-hmm. Simplecove.com. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Who are you? Alabama Woodworker. Just look it up. You'll find my website. You'll find my socials. And there you go. All right. We're all good. And uh, I guess we'll talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. Sounds talk good. Take See care. You. Bye. See you. Bye.